Now, I want us just to give thanks by listening to God's word. And uh, it's just, we've been in this series from uh, the book of 1 John uh, in, in the Bible for the last six or so weeks. And we're finishing up today in this book. It's this little letter, but we've been studying and learning both here on Sundays and in our small groups about what it is that John had to say to his original readers and what it is that God has to say to us through his words even, even today, as a local church, as, as Christian people in the world in which we live. And so we've been listening, and we've been thinking about, in particular, what it means to live in the light. So let's hear these final words today from John chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 13 and read to the end of the book, verse 21. Can we stand together as I read these words? John, First uh, John 5. Verses 13 through 21. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And when he says that I have written this, he's written this. I mean, this book, everything that he's just written, it's been a mouthful as well. But he's written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our requests of those things that please him, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray. God will give that person life. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So here we are, and uh, we're thinking again about what it means to live in the light. And John wrote it right here. I think the first scripture that I have up there, Jeremy, if you can put that up there, John, 1 John 1, verse 7, just um, there it is. But if we are living, read this with me, will you? But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Just leave that up there for a moment. Good things happen when we live in the light, I just want us to know that. 
We, we need to know that. We need to be reminded as we've been thinking about this theme throughout these weeks that good things happen when we live in the light. John suggests here that to live in the light means to live in relationship with God because guess what? God is light. If we live in the light, then we're living in God. We're living in his life and in relationship with him. Not only do we have relationship with God when we live in the light, but we have fellowship with others. And this has been a theme that has just gone through, permeated this book from the very beginning. We have fellowship with others who have experienced and who are walking in that same light, more than just a pat on the back, more than just, hey, how you doing, more than how was your week, more than, hey, you know, hope, hope you have a good Thanksgiving. We're talking about a fellowship that transcends all borders, all, all nationalities, all languages, all socioeconomic differences, all the things, all political parties, everything that could potentially divide us. In relationship with God, in the light, we are united. We have fellowship with one another. And he says, not only that, but we, but we experience the forgiveness of our sin in the light. How good is it to be forgiven of our sin? We experience not only forgiveness of our past sins, but we, we experience the freedom from the bondage of sin, this, this heavy bondage and slavery to sin. John says we experience freedom, not only forgiveness from the past sins, but freedom from the bondage of and the weight and the burden of sin even now. And so on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, I just say thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that in his matchless grace, God has invited us into his light. And we can walk in that light as we walk in relationship with him and as we walk in relationship with one another. Anybody want to say amen? amen? Thanks be to God. Praise the Lord. Keep it coming, people. I mean, this is what John is helping us with here. Now, I don't know about your experience with light. I'm still having a little bit of problems with this microphone, but um, that's not what I was going to say. I'm having some problems with this, uh, this time change still. Uh, we're a couple weeks into it, but uh, I still can't quite get used to it. I walked outside last night at 5 o'clock and just suddenly got depressed. Anybody with me? It's like, what? It's dark. It's not fair. I need some more light. I need some more light. I need some more daytime. And it's been nice having maybe an extra hour of light in the morning, but, yeah, we don't need it so much in the morning. We need it in the afternoon. Some of you are like, no, I like it in the morning. But, but we're on this march. Did you know this? We're on this march between now and December 21 to the shortest day of the year. And, and it's just, I looked at the time charts. It's just shrinking. It's just shrinking. I mean, the morning, the dark is staying longer, and the light's getting shorter, and it's just shrinking. And on December 21, it'll be the shortest day of the year, and we'll all just go home at 445 and put our pajamas on and just... <laughs> hunker down and pretend we're in Alaska or wherever it is that is like that all the time. And, and we'll just, you know, we'll just be in darkness and we'll like it. But guess what happens after December 21? It, you got to look at the charts. They're, they're awesome. You got to look at the charts. Just go online, Google it. Because after December 21, it starts to like stretch out literally by seconds a day. Seconds a day to begin with. It starts to stretch out. And then it gets more and more, more light, more longer, later, lighter, later, longer, and, and uh, lighter earlier in the morning. And it stretches out and stretches out. And as we move into the springtime, 
the light is dawning and growing and we get to live in the light. Well, this is the invitation that John has given to us as we've read this amazing book of Scripture. That, that we are invited to step out of the darkness, out of December 21 and into the springtime, into the light. Into this light of relationship with the one who is light, who is life. And into relationship with those around us and around the world who are entering into that same relationship of light and life. Praise the Lord. Praise God. He wants his readers. Remember, John was a pastor. He, he was a theologian, no doubt. He was a church leader, no doubt. But in, in this book in particular, he is, a, he is a pastor. You can hear his concern, and we heard it even again today. Little children, my dear children, writing to these people who have struggled. They've, they've been torn apart by division and false teaching, and he's wanting to tell them, keep living into the light. In particular, when we've talked about living in the light, we've talked about it in two ways. Remember, this living in the light of understanding. John wants to tell his people, and I want to tell you people, and I want us all to hear the word of the Lord, reminding us and encouraging us to live into the light of understanding. Let's don't be, uh, let's don't be okay with so-so Christian theology, so-so Christian teaching. Let's don't be okay with a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of whatever I want to add to it, and that's my faith, and it works for me. John says this will tear you apart faster than anything else possibly could as the church. We have to live into the light of understanding who it is that God is. And, and in particular, learning about who God is by understanding who it is that Jesus is. Who it is that God sent Jesus to be and what it is that God sent Jesus to do. We can't rest. We can't wait. We can't be comfortable or complacent until we have this firm understanding. And we can't even then rest because it's so easy to wander, as we'll talk about in just a few moments. It's so easy to wander. We have to hold our edge. We have to hold our life. We have to lean into the Holy Spirit. We have to keep asking for the Spirit to make our understanding better, the revelation of God better, our understanding, our, our insight into who Jesus was and what he did better and clearer and more helpful in the lives that we lead. We, I don't know about you, but I, I, I thought I was done with school. Some of you are like on Thanksgiving break and you are loving it. Where are the students in the room? I mean, are you just breathing easy right now and just loving being on Thanksgiving break? Well, guess what? School's not out. Sorry, just kidding. But it's not out for, for all of us. We have this invitation to live into the light of understanding. But we also have this invitation to live into the light of, of holiness, this light of a pure and righteous life that reflects the presence of Jesus, that's patterned after his life, that looks like him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is pleasing and glorifying to God. This light of holy living, a, a, a life that reflects our right thinking and is played out in right practice, right, right uh, action in the world. John wants us to be clear that it's not okay just to simply believe something and then not put it into practice. There, there's no easy believism religion here. There is no just simple, 
you know, an ascent to a set of truths and then go on as if nothing ever happened. John wants to tell us again and again, and he has, that because we believe rightly about who God is and what he did in Jesus, now we will act rightly. Now we will live rightly, empowered by the Spirit. We will live holy lives. And so some, if, there's a, if there's something broken there, then we need to ask, are we, are we not believing rightly? That's what was going on in 1 John. People weren't believing rightly, so they weren't acting rightly. Or are we... Or are we not acting rightly? Then perhaps we're, again, not believing rightly. If we're not believing rightly, then we need to find where the, the fix is to be. But John invites us, again, over and over, and again in these words that we've read this morning, into the light. It's in this last section that we read. There's these last few verses. I want to just spend a few moments with us this morning. John picks up many of the same basic themes that he's talked about in, uh, in this entire book. Ideas that he has repeated time and time again. How many of you are in small groups this fall? Just raise your hand if you're in a small group. Did anybody notice that John repeats himself from time to time? Anybody pick up on that? Okay. Okay. Just, in, you know, if you didn't, then you, you weren't reading. I mean, because he does. He, he just kind of, you know, it's like, John, we got that one. He's like, no, you don't. No, we got, no, you don't. I need to tell you again. And so, again, here in these last few verses, he picks up on many of the themes that he's repeated throughout his book. He wants to drill it deep into the heads and the hearts of his readers and into ours as well, to live in the light. Live in faith, he wants to say. Walk in obedience. Reject the lures of the world that will tempt you. Uh, turn away from sin. Stand with confidence before the Lord in relationship with him. Some of these themes that show up here, again, that, that he has spoken of throughout his book. And, and while all these themes are repeated here, it's, it's the last line, really, of this, of this section, which at first glance seems to just not fit. It just seems to kind of stand out and be out of place. But, but in, in reality, if we'll think about it, is that which draws all of these themes together, I believe, with a beautiful and a powerful force. That last, that last line, verse 21, the NLT translates it this way, dear children, read it with me, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Just leave that up there for a moment. The reality is that in this case, the translators of the New Living Translation have done actually much more than translation. They have done interpretation. They have, they have taken the original Greek language that this was written in and interpreted it in such a way to make these words more easy for us to hear in our English, English language and even in the context. I mean, he's been talking about all these kinds of things that might take the place of, of God in our lives, and then he ends it with this. Don't let anything that might take God's place in your hearts or keep away from that, Right? But in Greek, as is translated more accurately and not interpreted by the NIV, the ESV, I think I have it in the NIV, it says this. Read this with me. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Say what? And so you can imagine perhaps the, the first readers, and even readers today as we read 1 John. We read the whole book, and we're like, yeah, living in the light, I'm on it. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And how many have perhaps said, well, I don't know what that means, so 
Thanks, John. It was a good book. But how important it is perhaps that we dig into his last few words there and understand what it is that he's wanting to say. The NIV has not interpreted. They just translated. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You can take it down. Most scholars do agree that it's possible that John was referring to his readers keeping from actual idols, carved images of wood or stone that were in the temples in the Roman Empire that were popping up all around them, temples to every god and idols to every, every deity that you could ever think of. The Romans loved to build these temples and create these idols. The church of Jesus Christ in that first century would have been swimming in an environment of, of idols and would have been surrounded by the temptation to do just this. Wouldn't have been out of place at all for John to just simply say out of the blue, oh yeah, and keep away from those idols. They'll get you. Scholars also agree, however, that the that the literal use of the term, even, the Greek word for idols, the, the literal use of it as a carved image of wood or stone is very, very rare in the New Testament. And it would represent an unusually uh, abrupt and sudden change of thought for John to insert something like this right into the end of his letter. It would seem that John is writing about and is thinking about Something more, even with this simple little phrase. Something more in line as well with what it is that he's been talking about throughout his letter. And if we look at for that wider meaning then, it's likely to be found by understanding an idol actually as the NLT has interpreted. Could you put that one back up, Jeremy? Actually as the NLT interpreted it. Keep away from anything... That might take God's place in your hearts. Not necessarily now a carved image of wood or stone or a, a statue to a, a Greek God, but anything John might want to say to us that would take God's place in your hearts. And now, looking at that, if you step back even a little bit wider and get a little bit bigger glance at it and think about the context into which John is writing and all of his previous warnings in this letter, particularly about false teaching, it's most likely that the idol that he's warning these folks against is, again, not one of wood or stone, but precisely those unorthodox, unbiblical teachings about who God is and who he revealed himself to be in Jesus. These wrong understandings of God become our idols. And so in this case, uh, the, the idol actually was God. Big G God. It was just wrongly understood God. And, and the, the, the worshipers of these idols were once people who called themselves Christians. But they were worshiping the wrong understanding of who God was. Is that a tragic error or what? To... to Think that you're worshiping the true God. To think that you are a true follower of God and yet to have missed it by even just this much and in so doing to have missed it all. This is what John is warning us about. He's been insisting on God's love throughout the book. 
He's been insisting on the importance of loving one another. He's been insisting, most importantly, remember this, on the fact that Jesus Christ came fully in the flesh, not just as a nice uh, spiritual person, but as one who was fully God and fully man. And he's saying that this, all of these things are not just some good ideas that we should consider, but that this is the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In other words, John is saying here at the end, keep yourselves from anything or any understanding. Hear this. Keep yourself from anything or any understanding of God that isn't in line with the one that has been proclaimed from the beginning. Any idea or understanding of Jesus that isn't in line with the one that John has testified to as one who saw and walked with Jesus himself. If this isn't the God you worship, John says, then you're worshiping an idol. You're worshiping a false God. Now, there are some things that in life that it's not that big of a deal of to miss with. I... I uh, I often, my, my wife has helped organize my life in such a beautiful way that, that we have two laundry baskets. We have one for the colors and one for the whites. I think she's afraid that someday I might get inspired to do laundry and ruin all her clothes like I've done in the past. So she keeps us separated. But often I will, I've done it for 15 plus years, but still sometimes a color goes in the whites. Sometimes a white ends up in the colors. And Kyla, I'm sure as she picks up that laundry basket, thinks, my husband is weird. What's his problem? But you know, it's not that big of a deal. She, it can quickly be fixed. Not, not, too, not too hard. My, my son has trouble getting it in the basket at all. But that's <laughs> another story. Um, he's got skills. Don't, but, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, we, we can just ask him, hey, man, get in the basket next time. I mean, and he does. It's not, you know, I mean, he's in a hurry. He's got things to do. It's not that big a deal if he misses the basket the first shot. It's not that huge of a deal in cornhole if you miss the hole and still land it on the board. I mean, it's nice to get three points. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, if you at least land it on the board, you get one. I mean, it's not the end of the world, especially if you've got a good partner who's going to carry you. Everything is going to be okay in that. It's, it's okay even in basketball. My, my freshman team uh, had our first scrimmage yesterday, and I can testify that we missed uh, a lot. Um, but you know what? It's just the first scrimmage. It's going to be okay. And even if it was the championship game, it would be okay. I mean, it's, it's not the end of the world. You, the best basketball players miss half the time. And uh, how discouraging. It's better than baseball, though. Um, you know, I, so... So just lots of things that it doesn't really matter if you miss. Our understanding of God and especially who God is as revealed in Jesus is one that we just cannot dare miss. John's saying at the end of his whole book, if, if you miss this, it's a domino effect. If you miss this, everything else 
is missed as well from here on out. If we miss our understanding of what it is that God has done for us in Jesus and who God is as revealed in Jesus, this one fully God, fully man who came to live and to die and to be raised from the dead and who, whose spirit came in fullness to empower us to not only believe that but to live in the light of that. If we miss any piece of this, then it all just sort of, it's like a, is that a house of cards? Is that what we call it? One, one comes out, it's, it, it's Jenga, it, you, you, you know, you pull that, the whole thing comes tumbling down. We dare not miss it. That's why I'm talking about this so much. Because on the other hand, what John wants to tell us is if we, if we get it right about Jesus, if we get it right about who God is, if we submit ourselves to the biblical teaching if we submit ourselves to the historical teaching of the church, if we submit ourselves to the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said will remind us of all the truth and will remind us of what Jesus did and said himself, if we'll submit ourselves to these things and, and, and by his grace we get it right, John wants to say there's some amazing domino effects of that as well. There's some amazing trickle-down of getting it right in terms of our understanding and our life with God. He, he talks about this, this new intimacy. Well, first of all, he talks about this eternal life. He talks about, I'm writing this so that those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God can have eternal life. And, and we need to know that when John talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about like quantity, I think I've said this in weeks before, he's not just talking about, you know, from here to eternity, or actually, as most of us think about eternal life, from when we die to eternity. He, he's, thinking, he's thinking about quantity, yes, but quantity in terms of from right now as we put our faith in God through Jesus from throughout all eternity. And he's not only talking about quantity, he's talking about quality. What kind of life? Full and free, and meaningful, and purposeful, and full of joy, even in the midst of trial and difficulty. He's saying if we get it right with Jesus, if we get God right, then this is an amazing gift that we are set to receive. He says that in this, in this eternal life, this quality of eternal life, did you hear this? We have such intimacy with God. That, that, we can, that we can discover what it is that pleases him. That's a hard thing to do with anybody, right? It's a hard thing to do with anybody. Just to figure out, Kyle and I have been talking about our love languages. Anybody read that book? All right, there's a book called The Love Languages. And it, if you haven't read the book, it may sound really weird right now. But there's different, four, I think four that he suggests, different love languages, the author is at five, and, and just different ways that, that people hear or receive love. It's a, a certain language. And let's call them out. I, let's see if we can remember them all. Kristen, can you help me? I know quality time, gifts. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> Yell out your love language. Acts of service, physical touch, words of encouragement. All right, we got it. All right, so these are different ways that we speak the language of love to our spouses in particular. 
And sometimes, if you don't read the book, it might take you a long time to figure out, if you ever do, what exactly it is that your spouse is, how they understand the language of love. They may not even know. They just know that what you're putting out isn't working. Or, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm giving this person all sorts of gifts, and they still say that I'm not loving them. What's the deal? That's because your love language is gift-giving. Theirs is quality time or another one. It's hard to figure out what pleases someone else. John says that in this life, this quality of life relationship with the Father, we can, know, we can begin to know and understand what pleases him. In other translations and other thinking, we can begin to know what his will is. We can begin to know so intimately in our relationship with him that we don't have to read uh, that book. We can just read this book and we can get to know what his purposes are for the world. And then he says that we can begin to pray that way. We begin to pray that way because this is what God wants. And as we do, as we're praying what we know God already wants, we are confident God hears us. Because this is what he wants already. He hears us anyway, even if we're not praying what he wants, but when he Here's us praying what he wants, then John reminds us that he is quick to respond. Now, even when we know what he wants, we may not know what he should do about that or how he should carry it out. So what we ask, he will answer, but it won't always be the way that we thought it would be. But you know what? I, as I read this passage again, you know, my first inclination, that passage about prayer where he tells us to ask, you know, whatever, uh, since we know he hears us, when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. And my first inclination was to be to qualify that comment in like three different ways. And I actually have already qualified it a couple of ways. But my, my, my final thought on that was simply, you know, just unqualify it. I mean, the Bible says it. Let's just, let's seek and let's lean into who God is. Let's learn about what he wants and how he's acting in the world. And let's pray fervently for what we think to be God's purposes in the world and let's expect him to act and let's watch for him to move and let's pray boldly and not only fervently but let's pray big prayers does God love the world does he does he want that everyone should come to repentance absolutely that's what first Peter or second Peter 3 9 says and so we know the Bible tells us this is God's will so we pray for the salvation of every person there's other prayer requests that we can know that we can believe that are God's purposes. And John reminds us that we know the Lord so intently and intimately that we can pray these ways. We for sure know from John that we should pray for fellow believers who have fallen or are falling into sin. Makes that one very clear in these passages and in these verses. The reality is that sooner or later, a brother or sister, even though John will just in a moment write that no Christian, no follower of Jesus will make a practice of sinning, he knows, and he's qualified this, that sooner or later, every brother or sister in faith will fall into sin, will, will make a willful, disobedient decision, will turn away from what they know God wanting them to do and to be and make a selfish decision to do what they want to do and what they want to be. And, and sooner or later, that's going to happen in the life of every believer, John says, the, the church, 
the, the people of God who have gotten to know the Lord so intimately and know his will are to be the first ones to begin to pray for that person. I just love this because I don't know what your instinct is, but I, my experience, even around good Christian people in churches, is when brothers and sisters begin to fall into sin, our first instinct is to talk about them. Or our first instinct is to judge them in our hearts. Our first instinct is to ask, what's the matter with them? Why are they acting like that? What's their problem? They're obviously not a good Christian, and we just like to judge or critique. Or we say, well, if they're doing that and they're a Christian, then maybe what I'm doing isn't so bad after all. And we like to compare and contrast and like to do all, play all these silly games. Let's just call them what they are with the sin in a fellow believer's life. And John says, knock it off and start praying for that person. You need to know if you start to wander into sin that there is somebody praying for you. And I need to know that if somehow my eyes are blinded and something happens and my emotion or something gets the best of me or, or a temptation just looks so alluring and I step into that, I need to know that there's somebody who is praying for me. That's praying that God will grab hold of him and turn his heart back. I saw a picture uh, last night. Kyla showed me on Instagram of my friend Jeff, Jeffrey McGrady. And uh, I won't tell, her, tell you how she identified him, but it was right around this area in the picture. And uh, anyway, we love Jeffrey. If you don't know Jeffrey, he was, a, he, was a, uh, he was at the rescue mission when I first met him. He was in the, in the recovery program there. And uh, he began to attend our church. I remember the, the, actually the community work day that our family picked him up down the rescue mission and took him out to sweep streets on the west side and got to know him just sweeping streets. And Jeffrey uh, was wandering in sin. And he'll readily and quickly acknowledge the uh, sin that he had wandered into. Uh, Jeffrey started to come to our church a little bit, and many of you know the story. And I mean, he, he just really turned his life to the Lord. And does, Re does Jeffrey still have some rough edges? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But does Jeffrey love the Lord? Absolutely. And, and he, he moved to the East Coast for a, a job, and he, um, he found a church there quickly, went on mission trips with that church. Now he's over in Maui for like six months on a work project there. And uh, so what did he do? He found the Maui Church of the Nazarene, and he was on a seven-mile hike up Haleakala with the men's group from that church when the picture was taken that we saw last night. One of my friends who used to be a youth pastor on our district is now the pastor of the Maui church. Again, Danny, it's, maybe it's not cool to be a part of a denomination sometimes, but it's pretty sweet other times. And so Tim, Pastor Tim and Jeffrey are making this connection, this beautiful bond, and Jeffrey's growing in the Lord. And, and if you ask Jeffrey why he's doing that, It'll be, he'll say because his mama never stopped praying for him. I, I mean, I don't think he'll take an ounce of credit. I really don't. <laughs> My mama just kept praying for me. She prayed for me. She still prays for me. And, and, and here's, a, here's the life of someone who has been pulled out of the pit because of the prayers of God's people. We cannot stop praying 
John makes this little weird little comment in here that there is a sin that leads to death, and I am not telling you to pray for that person. And most scholars think that what he's talking about there is this, uh, this sin that leads to death is teaching falsely about Jesus or understanding falsely about Jesus and, and being committed to that false position, persistently believing wrongly about Jesus, unopen to instruction, unresponsive to, to uh, correction. And John actually says, I'm not telling you to pray for them. He doesn't say, don't pray for them. So I wonder about this, because I've been bothered by this in 1 John. I don't know if you have. I've been bothered that he never tells us to love the world, the people around us. He always just tells us to love one another in the church. And I've been bothered by that, because I'm like, yeah, I got that. I got that. Let's get on to the world. And I just, every time I say that, I hear John saying, no, you don't. Start there. You haven't got it figured out yet. Get that right, because that opens the door then to loving the world. And I wonder if he's saying the same thing here. Pray for believers who have fallen into sin. I mean, you got to pray. You got to pray. You got to pray. And I'm not telling you to pray for those who are completely hard-hearted to God because you got to start here with the brothers and sisters who are hurting and who are falling. And, and when you're there, you know, when you got that taken care of, then we'll get on to this. And if you've got enough space in your prayer life, then keep praying for them as well. But I'm not going to give you that instruction because I want you to focus on this one. I, I, I love reading commentaries on, on hard-to-understand passages because I read about four, and they all had something different to say about this passage. But I think that's the best bet, the best shot at it in, in terms of understanding how it is that we're to relate. He, he nowhere says, just hear this, he nowhere says, don't pray for them. He just says, I'm not telling you to. And I think we can draw some, some understanding there. Um, finally, this. John reminds us that in this life with God, this eternal life, this quality of life, that children of God will not make a practice of sinning. That uh, this will not be an ongoing, continual habit. There might be a blip on the radar screen, but we'll quickly turn in the other way and get back to what God wants us to do. And why can we do that? Because he says, we are held securely by Jesus. Amen. We can't do it because we're good enough, because we're smart enough, because we have the skills or the abilities. We do it because we're held securely by Jesus. Jesus who is in the Father, Father who is in Jesus, we who are caught up and held securely in that God life are sent to live a holy life, a life that pleases God, that's patterned after Jesus, and that results and manifests and shows itself in a life of love to one another and to the world. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. And we're going to sing a closing song together. And then Aaron will come and share just a brief, couple brief announcements. But um, thank you so much for, uh, for being here today. Thank you for, for your attention, not to this sermon necessarily, although it's always very much appreciated, but to this book of the Bible. And I just say it every time we finish a study, we're going to leave 1 John, but may we dare not let 1 John leave us. Every genre, every book, every letter in Scripture has something special to say to us. That's why we have the whole canon, the whole Bible, the whole book. This 
letter wants to remind us of the light, of holiness, of understanding. And may that be a theme that continues to work its way into us and through us. Let's stand together, can we? And let's sing and then I'll come back and pray.